We got a lot to get to this morning. Let's get this party started, roll up our sleeves, and get to work. Um, the last two weeks, we've discussed the mission of Sunrise Community Church. All right, introduce people to Jesus, help them grow by His grace. There'll be a quiz later. In the next several weeks, we're, uh, we'll focus on how we envision, with God's help and as one body, sort of carrying out this mission. So the first avenue through which we want to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by His grace is community. And we'll see this morning in the second chapter uh, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians that it is in fact Jesus and His grace that are the two biggest keys to life-changing community. And i got to just make this disclaimer that I kind of feel sorry for you this morning. I kind of feel bad. All right, because somewhere nestled snugly uh, in the middle of the sermon, uh, some or most of us are going to receive a uh, sucker punch to the gut. All right, it's going to happen. It's going to be painful momentarily. All right, and it's going to be concerning with whom we do community and how we do it. And I feel bad because I know that uh, it's hard enough taking the time and making the effort to reach out to people in the church that you're not even sure you'd like yet. All right? you're, you're, you're wondering. All right, I know that's difficult. And for those of you uh, who are married, you have to deal in couples. Right? So uh, the chances with all the combinations of getting along like, decrease. All right? When you're a couple meeting with a couple. Have you ever done this? Have you ever played the couples compatibility game? Right? When you have a, uh, a couple over for dinner, right? and afterwards you ask the question, so... What did you think? I really liked her. Right? You get in this, this discussion. You know, she's walking partner potential. Maybe even prayer partner potential. You know, something, Pilates, could happen. All right? And, and you get excited. And you love relating. And then, it's, I usually find it's the male that says, yeah, um, yeah, I know the guy. Uh, he's a Christian and all. But uh, he laughs like a donkey. And uh, he, he knows the lyrics to It's a Whole New World. Which, you know, no man should know the lyrics. Like, the chorus is okay. It's a whole new world. Don't you dare close your eyes. But he knows all the lyrics. That's just not normal. You know, and I always find that guys are more picky. Like, in general, guys aren't picky at all until it comes to couple relationships. And they're like, no, can't do it. He wears socks with sandals. It's not happening. <laughs> now, look, to be honest, I'd be horrified if I knew what people said after uh, myself and Katie left their home. I mean, I'm sure it'd be like, Katie, oh, she's great. What a sweet girl. That guy, he's borderline neurotic. I don't know what's going on with him. That's, that kind of scrutiny is why we avoid having couples over to our house this year. That and the fact that Katie's working and going to school. That's the truth. That's going to be over in June, though. It's going to be great. Uh, so it's hard enough just to reach out to someone we like, right? But and with people who have things in common... But then God seems to want more. He, he seems to require and ask for more. And I feel the same way as you, that this passage we're going to read this morning sort of sucker punched me. Out of nowhere, but along with it, along with this passage, along with the sucker punch, comes the grandest, most glorious, yet most possible description of the church this side of eternity. So, as you receive some pain from the sermon, I'll just say, 
Wait for it. All right, it will come. So turn with me to Ephesians 2. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that's on page 836. This is a gold mine of a chapter. And we could spend weeks sort of dissecting it and looking at all the shiny jewels in it. But when reading the Bible, especially Paul, it's sometimes good to step back and see sort of the general flow of thought that's going on, especially in Paul's mind. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to examine Paul's flow all right, in three parts. First, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Read this with me if you would. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of good works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, throughout this book, Paul envisions life as a walk. Peripateo is the Greek word that's used seven times, all at crucial moments, either when Paul's introducing a new idea or shifting his thought. He talks about walking. Alright, so you walked one way. If you didn't know Christ or still don't know Christ, following the path or what he calls the course of this world. But then Jesus shows up on the scene. You turn around and you walk with him toward God. And along the way, what does it say in verse 10? You walk into good works. By faith, you start producing fruit in your life. That's the general idea. Walking one way, turning around with Jesus, walking towards God. So who you trust your life to. And who you worship matters in Scripture. And this likely does not surprise you. Like, for whatever reason you're here this morning, whoever may have dragged you, like, you had to have known that the, the J-bomb would be dropped this morning, right? Someone's going to drop the J-bomb. Jesus, that's why we're here. This is who we worship. This is who matters. But it's not simply who you approach, but how you approach them that matters. Right, that's the first flow we're going to see in Paul's thought here. We see this in verse 4, but we see it again in verse 8 or 9. By grace you have been saved. This preposition by indicates the means by which you have trusted Jesus and begun to walk with him. It has happened by grace. As Brad said earlier in announcements, thanks for the promo Brad, it is God's love made active through an undeserved gift. God loves you. But he doesn't just love you again in that sentimental hallmark sort of way. He does something about it. He makes his love active. He puts Jesus in your path. And if he hasn't done that yet, I pray he will. And you know, you can tell that Paul is hyper-concerned about this. As soon as he starts talking about this new life in verse 4, he can't wait 
till verse 8 to mention how it happens. Grace. Right? So he inserts it in verse 5, like where he's going along, God being rich in mercy, because of this great love, while you're dead in your trespass and made you alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. Right? He can't even wait to get to verse 8 to say it. Like, notice in one sense how out of place that seems. It's like a third grade, third grader's obnoxious subliminal message that's not really subliminal. Alright, just randomly. And it seems like Paul is inserting something almost random here. And I think it's because he's so excited about grace that he mentions it a little earlier. By grace you've been saved. So he gives us this gift of saving us from a life of misery and from an eternity of pain, even though we're undeserving. How has it happened? By grace. And so as a result... We are called to approach him accordingly. Right? Hands held out to receive help, knowing we are undeserving. There's nothing on our own we can do. It is not by works. So we hold out our hands to receive help with humility. That is grace. That is why James 4, James 4, James quotes Proverbs saying, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, the only requirement to receive grace is to know and acknowledge that you need it. That's it. How we approach him matters. Think about it. Many people approached Jesus during his time on earth. But most fell into one of two categories. All right? Some, like the rich young ruler, approached Jesus to get affirmation for their existing life. They came to Jesus not to be changed by him or to acknowledge him as Lord, but to say, to affirm their lifestyle. Affirm me, Jesus. Bless me. Tell me what I'm doing is right. And I'll walk away. Or they approached him because they knew they were unworthy of a holy God, but desperate for someone to rescue them. Totally desperate for someone to rescue them. Like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet in Luke 7. Many were like her. Didn't have anything to give. Knew they didn't. They didn't have a work to give. But they just came to Jesus to be rescued. So we see how a person approaches Jesus matters because it was critical to whether they stuck with him or not. Right? The rich young ruler and those like him walked away. But those who came because they knew they needed help, they acknowledged they needed grace, they clung to him. So it matters how we approach Jesus. Paul recognizes that approaching Jesus and doing so by grace then not only affects our vertical relationship, right, our relationship with God, but it also affects our horizontal relationships with one another. That's why after establishing the who and the how, Paul says in verse 11, look at this, therefore, look at verse 11, therefore. Therefore is Paul's way of saying, because of everything I've just talked about, because of the, the who, because of the how you approach Jesus, those things matter then to how you relate to other people. Therefore, let me tell you how to do community. Because of grace. Because of Jesus. So, here's the second flow in Paul's thought. Who you approach and how you approach them matter in our horizontal relationships. This kind of covers verses 11 through 18. Let's read verses 11 through 12 though. Therefore, remember... 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, in other words the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So I want to give you a little background here. When he says, you Gentiles in the flesh, Paul is writing to a church comprised of mostly non-Jewish people, all right, with some Jewish Christians. See, before Jesus, if you were a Gentile and you wanted uh, to become part of God's people, you had to do a few things. You'd have to offer, this is just initially, you have to offer a specific sacrifice. You'd have to take what was equivalent to a purification bath. And then, oh yes, you had to enter into circumcision. Alright, now, uh, that is why the Jews would call the non-Jews the uncircumcision. Because people didn't just say, oh, what the heck. I'll just get circumcised. Most would not do it. And so that's what separated most people from the Jews. Now, there was a city in Antioch, the city called Antioch, where Gentiles were first introduced by the masses to how they could get included into God's family without circumcision. This is huge. I mean, Christianity exploded in this place called Antioch. The first missionaries were launched from Antioch. You can read about this in Acts 11 through 13. Christianity spread so fast that they come up with names for Christians. They have to find a name for them. So they call them Christians. First place. They do so. And similar to this, to Ephesus, we're reading this morning, in this place, Antioch, follow me on this, there were a number of scattered Jews, there was lots of wealth, and it was major trading port. It was the third largest city in the known world. So you had people from every nation. All kinds of people. So when the gospel went to them, you had all kinds of people in a church. And see, what happened was, many of those who trusted Christ during this time were first attracted to Jewish monotheism, the idea of one God, okay? And so what they would do is they would loosely attach themselves to a synagogue. And then they heard the good news. But why didn't they before that go into full conversion? Why didn't they just become Jewish? You guessed it, circumcision. No one wanted to get circumcised. Let's just say there was a higher uh, percentage of female conversions than male conversions, all right, for Jews. You can understand why, all right? So you can imagine then, that's the scene, then they become Christians, not by circumcision. How did the new Jewish Christians feel about this? You can imagine how they felt. It's not fair. We went all the way. We got circumcised. We did more than you did. And so they felt a sense of superiority to the Gentiles. Yeah, it's okay that you're saved by faith, but look what I had to go through. So Paul here makes sure to address tensions like these that are going on in Ephesus between Jewish people, Jewish Christians, and non-Jewish Christians. And he reminds them that who they know and how they know them matters to how they relate to one another. Look with me in verse 13 through 14. Let's continue to look along with this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Now there are two who's going on here. All right? There are the other Christians, or the Jewish Christians. 
Jews by ancestry. So when he says you are brought near, he means you Gentiles are brought near into the family of God with those who are Jews by ancestry. But such adoption into God's family requires a second who, right? Jesus. That's why he says in verse 14, in Christ Jesus, he himself is our peace. Right? He is the thing, he is the person who brings us together and reconciles us with the family of God. I was speaking to someone um, this week about marital problems they're experiencing and they were talking about frustrations they were having with their spouse and she was saying, you know, it takes, it just takes two people to make this thing work. And as we talked, I, I said to her, you know, I've found, really, it takes three. To be honest, friends, I don't know, and I don't mean this as a slight at all to people who don't know Christ, I just don't know how people do marriage without Jesus. I really don't. I mean, I'm, I'm just talking to my own experience of marriage. When arguments are entered into, and when you're faced with this prospect of losing or using, right? You know what I mean. Lose yourself and your ground, or using the other person to gain ground. When facing that, you can't rely on other things to bail you out. Right? You can't rely on your love for, you know, uh, snorkeling, or your love for WNBA basketball, all right, or whatever it might be. All right? That's pretty random. But you can't rely on the other things you have in common to bail you out. Those things aren't powerful enough to save you in those moments, to rescue you. They just aren't. And it's true of any relationship, not just marriage, any relationship with depth, that there's always a third party. There's always some commonality, some glue that binds you together with that other person. And as a Christian, you don't have the glue stick. You don't have almonds. You have gorilla glue. I mean, you have the strongest most sure, most trustworthy glue that binds you to somebody else. One that is everlasting. He is our peace. And we have that with community. And I want to speak, just a quick aside, I want to speak to, um, I want to speak to men for a moment. Especially men whose job entails making decisions. Frankly, uh, I'm deeply troubled, to be honest. Deeply troubled speaking to women again and again, who desire prayer, who desire good counsel, but have spouses who are unwilling, just unwilling to work on or seek out help from their marriage, from a third party. And it's not just marriage, but, that's, but, but marriage is the point of pain that I most feel and most grieve over. And the reason I bring this up, because men, a number of us will turn to a third party for advice on business, a business deal, a business proposition, you know, either to get good counsel about it or to cover your butt. You know what I mean? Or both. Right? You go to your boss, you want your boss to know about it because you, you want him to cover your butt. You talk to someone else about it because you want to see if it's a good idea. You'll swallow your pride to do that. But when it comes to relating to a brother and sister in Christ, when it comes to relating to the church, his bride, or relating to your actual bride, Men, we often turn inward. We become self-reliant, don't we? And I was thinking, why is this the case? Why, you know, when we're out there wheeling and dealing, we can ask people for opinions and thoughts, 
But not in the most important things of life. Why? Money. I can't think of any other reason. Those relationships with your boss or people influential in your business, what is the glue? It's money. And friends and men, that's a counterfeit God. You will never find satisfaction from that God. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to recognize that it is that. It is the thing that binds you to people. It is the thing for which you will go and get counseled to the ends of the earth if it gets you more money. I know that's hard to hear. There's two, there's two hows here as well, though. There's two hows. Christ included Gentiles into this new community by his blood, it says in verse 13. In other words, through no merit on their own, nothing deserved, but simply trusting that Jesus died for them. It was by grace that they are included into this community. And so this leads to a second how. How do two radically different groups of people relate to each other? It's got to be by grace. Even right now, you might be, I don't really like this guy speaking this morning. How do you relate to me? Grace. I'm different than him. I don't have the same preferences. In our vision statement, it says, because of grace, we do not claim any kind of superiority over one another. So, there are who's and there are how's, and they mattered how we relate to each other. So, you know, I kind of wonder at this point, if you know where I'm going with all this. I made a few statements, we've gone through the word. I kind of hope you don't know where I'm going with this, you know, element of surprise. But you're going to find out. Here we go. All right? What we see in Paul's thoughts here as we move on is this old standard and this new standard of how we judge one another. Look with me in verse 14. All right, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. Okay. So, hostility based on superiority. I feel like I'm better than you. It's broken down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed through ordinances. What does that mean? Did Jesus just get rid of the Old Testament law? Like, is it gone? Like, is most of this obliterated? Well, let me back up. The Jews had God's law. It was everything to them, all right? Which included getting circumcised, going through these rituals, etc., And it was the law that was the dividing wall between them and everyone else. Because whomever didn't follow the law was under this curse of judgment. Alright, so you're cursed. Alright, so here's us over here. Everyone else cursed. Sorry. Not part of the club. Cursed. But Jesus, through his death on the cross, did something. He didn't abolish the whole law, but he abolished its curse. In other words, he abolished the law, all right? The law. Obey your mother, obey your father, do this, do that, which is pretty hard to follow that perfectly. He abolished the law as the standard by which people were judged. All right, which is good news both for the Jew and the Gentile. Because no one could, no one could measure up to that. But as for how that matters to relationships, the Jews had no grounds to judge Gentiles. Nor could the Gentiles judge those snobbish Jews. But rather there was a new standard. Trust in Jesus. That is the new standard for Jews and Gentiles alike. To be included in this community.
That's it, trusting Jesus. Here's where I'm going with all of this, and I mean all of this. We have in our midst this morning, we have in our midst every day, two different groups of persons. Their names are written side by side in our, in our laws. In newsprint, they engender ranges of emotion on message boards and in classrooms throughout Cayman. Those two groups are Comanians and expats. And friends, we are not beyond this. We claim to be indiscriminate. As our church, as church, we claim to be indiscriminate in welcoming people. Come as you are. We are not indiscriminate in relating to people. We're honest. I don't, I'm not going to give you lots of examples for this. I think if we're honest about who you talk to after services, we're not beyond this. And I think this is due to the fact that both groups have a standard of judgment for the other apart from trust in Christ, apart from faith in Christ. There's a standard of judgment. So let's be real with each other. What is that? The standard for which expats judge commandments is this. They must have the same degree of experience and level of education as me to be deserving of anything near my occupation. All right? Even though they didn't live where you live, even though they may not have been exposed to the same opportunity to, to attend some prestigious university or graduate school, which, by the way, was often uh, given to you vis-a-vis -vis money that you didn't earn, even though that's the case, that's the standard. Anything short of that? That's not right. That's an impossibly high standard. Similarly, the standard which commandians set for expats. Let me say, I'm not speaking on my own. We have another commandians in our church. I've spoken to them this week. I speak to them often. I speak to other pastors about this. So I'm not speaking as this expat kind of flying off the handle. But here's the standard for which commandians set for expats. You must live here for five plus years and demonstrate extraordinary involvement in the community for me to believe you give a rip and even begin to accept you. That's the standard. Alright? I have a Canadian friend who's lived on the island for over 10 years. He goes out of his way every week to serve men in need. And he once told me this. He said, only among a handful of people, Ryan, do I feel I'm accepted. And those are among the people I serve. But among people who, who at least know that I serve, they won't look me in the eye. Or even really include me in conversations. This is an impossibly high standard. Now, I'm tempted to land here. If we just understand each other, if we understand what makes the other person on the other side of the wall of hostility, if we, if we understand what makes them tick, what they're frustrated with, what they feel, then we'll find a middle ground. And to be honest, I like this approach because I love learning about other cultures. I really do. I'm not just saying that. I love even Cayman culture especially. In fact, I love to drop Cayman culture references. Uh, in fact, la uh, recently I met someone with the last name Parsons. All right? And so when they told me their last name, I dropped, uh, oh yeah, you must be related to uh, the last Custos of Cayman, Edmund Parsons. And man, they were, imp they were impressed. They were like, oh yeah. You think that opened up a door? Yahtzee! It did. I had it. Yes. Let's talk. All right? Now that's great. And, and while understanding people and their... And their History and their, their culture is important. It is absolutely important. And I mean on both sides. It is not sufficient, friends. It is not sufficient. Paul offers a more radical solution. Let's keep reading in Ephesians. Verse 15. 
He goes on to say, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. His solution is he might create one new man out of two. Not bring two parties together to work out their differences. Look, we have ambassadors. We have, from our respective countries, we have the United Nations that do a pretty good job of that. Understand each other. Where are you coming from? Let me get in your culture. And guess what? There are still wars going on. That does not bring peace, friends. God asks us no longer pledge allegiance to party and preferences. But he wants to make something wholly new. It's okay to have party and preferences, but not pledge allegiance to it. He wants to make something radically new. He might reconcile us both to God in one body. One new man, one body. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said in his brilliant work, Life Together, great book on community, he said this, the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede, and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. That dismisses once and for all every clamorous desire for something more. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. Isn't that so tempting though? It's like we don't want just Jesus between us. We want Jesus and something else. Right? We want Jesus and just that, those extra things we enjoy and we have in common so we can relax. It's so tempting to have that. Every clamorous desire for something more. But Paul is challenging us to open ourselves up to a new kind of relationship. One man out of two. A new kind of relationship. A relationship where you ask someone to share their story, maybe how they came to faith in Christ. Where you share what you're learning. Where what becomes central is sharing struggles so you can encourage one another. It's this kind of relationship that Paul is encouraging. To build our life around Christ. And you know what? The rest of that other stuff will come. Getting to know each other, enjoying inside jokes and, and, and different things. That will come. What Paul says is he wants to make us into this new man. And so we have this challenge before us. Build relationships with Jesus as our glue. Jesus is our glue, which are characterized by grace through the new standard of faith. And we have this solution of how it can happen. A radically new kind of relationship. But I know you're sitting there and you think, you know, I, I hear this. I, I've heard it in the media. I've heard it in newsprint. You know, I've, I've heard people talk about it. But it's hard enough to build relationships. And friends, I get that. The only thing lacking with this vision of real community on this island is motivation. We need something deep to motivate us, to jumpstart us. And keep us going. Frankly, friends, I need this motivation. My default mode is to find comfort and talk of Uncle Sam and apple pie. There's only so much I can take of hearing rules about cricket or rugby. All right? Like, I feel that way sometimes. Or different ways to prepare turtle. All right? Until I see it fried, like, I don't want turtle. You know, I get sick of that too. I get tired sometimes. I'm <laughs> human. 
And I have to ask myself, why would I want something more? What's in it for me? And this is the last part of what Paul, Paul thinks here. Think bigger than me. What's in it for me? You've got to think bigger than me. We need a divine motivation. And Paul gives us one. Something bigger than ourselves. Because in addition to grace, which allows for no personally merited credit, the other hostility killer is seeing past the relative smallness of disputes and tensions into something far more larger than ourselves. Far more larger than me. So listen with me to this ever-expanding vision that Paul gives. He starts here, and watch how it gets bigger, this vision he gives. Listen with me. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you realize, let's think big, but it's going to get bigger. Do you realize there are probably 250 million people who are worshiping Jesus along with us right now? And that's not counting the church in Ethiopia. You know, they're like us saying how great thou art nine hours ago. Right? Or, or the pastor in Pakistan who is just now sleeping off his own sermon on community. Right? This is happening everywhere. It's remarkable. That's pretty big. But it gets bigger. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Real people really will meet them in heaven. They lay all the foundation and set the stage for the real show. That happens through the church today. You know, what, you know what two things that the prophets and the apostles have in common? One, right, they spoke God's word. And two, they die. They speak God's word and they die. Friends, these were the ones who set the stage, who laid the groundwork for us. A stage they desired for us, but stained with real blood. Real sacrifice. We get to participate in that. And we get to see it actually more fully than they ever got to see. Bigger. But it gets bigger. Read with me in verse 20. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is there. He is the start of something. So we have, again, all the members of the household of God who presently live. Then we have the apostles and prophets. Now it's Jesus as the chief cornerstone, the big building block. He's the start of something. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So now we're becoming this building, a holy temple? A temple. That must mean one thing. Temples only house one person. And then it gets bigger. Verse 22. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see this? Bigger and bigger and bigger. We get to be a part of this when we relate to one another by Jesus and through grace. You see, God removed His presence from the temple a long time ago. Hundreds of years before he chooses new digs. And so what does he choose? Us. Not Solomon's golden temple, the ancient wonder of the world. Not some beautiful place like New Zealand. He chooses us. Stinky, rotten, average to below average people who knew they need a rescuer. 
us, God's temple. Close with this. At a conference I attended in April, I was personally challenged by a fellow pastor who spoke what I believe is a word from God. He said, Ryan, you must be convinced that God wants his church to be multi-ethnic, to be multinational wherever possible. Friends, I can think of a few places that could be more possible than Cayman. I don't know what this church is for you. All right? it, it, for some, it might be like a holiday inn. Or like a quick stop before you move on from Cayman. So you'll enjoy the amenities, you know, enjoy the bathrobe before you, you throw it on the ground, throw towels on the ground, and you check out. For others, it might be more like one of those um, extended stay hotels, right? Where you care a little more, you make your bed, you take a look around the, the facilities, the grounds, and that's okay. But no matter what this church is for you, friends, if you love Christ, if you love His people, love them where you find yourself. Because you can't love your neighbor in the past, and you can't love your neighbor in the future. You can only love your neighbor now. We can't be a church of the past. Right now, we can't be a church of the future. We can only be a church now. In the next chapter of Ephesians we find two of the most awesome verses in all of Scripture. And they are verses that make you think big. The first is Ephesians 3.10, where Paul says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Think about it. The manifold wisdom of God works through the church to be known to like spiritual forces of the world. Awesome. Look at Ephesians 3.20. Here's another one. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. You've heard this before maybe. But what's the context? Why does Paul say that? Do you know what it is? It's Gentiles and Jews coming together. One group being included and the other accepting of them. Do you get that? The manifold wisdom of God is how the gospel includes and unites radically different people into the same family for everyday living. God being able to do more than we ask or imagine is seeing people who would otherwise never relate, relate more regularly and more fervently and more lovingly than two soccer moms relate, than two fishermen relate, than two dive buddies, than two financial gurus. That's the vision God gives us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a big vision. And you know how much I cut out of this sermon. Not talking about all the practicals of how we do this. But Lord, I pray this morning that we would have this vision before us, this church founded on the apostles and prophets. But bigger than that, Jesus as the cornerstone. But bigger than that, being built into this temple. But bigger than that, a temple that houses the living God. All of that culminating when we are a church that truly has Jesus as the glue of our relationships. As the thing we have in common. We're dividing walls of hostility. Or if we don't want to call it that because we're uncomfortable calling it that. Tension between Jew and Gentile. Or in our case, let's be honest. Commandian and non-commandian. That is broken down. Lord, want that. 
May we all want that, Lord, the way we relate to each other. In our community groups, grabbing coffee after church, inviting someone over for dinner. Challenge our hearts with that, Lord. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.